Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read briefly from Ephesians chapter 4 to set a little bit of the context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning is the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 68. But Psalm 68 stands as something of of a fulcrum. There are two extremes. One is Numbers chapter 10 in the Old Testament, Moses. The other is Ephesians 4. Those two texts, Ephesians 4 and Numbers 10, hinge on Psalm 68. We'll see that play out as we go through it. So let's first understand what Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, is one, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Philosophers all the way back to ancient Greece have identified this problem, the one and the many. How do we have a oneness that is perceptible and yet diverse among many? I was taught this philosophical principle in high school by a clever teacher who said, what is a dog? I mean, if you looked at a chihuahua and a great dane, would you conclude they're the same species? I mean, what is dog that makes those things the same? We look around the room and we say, Christian, one category, one thing. Boy, if I look at my faith and I look at your faith and I go... We don't look a lot alike, do we? We live differently. We think differently. There's a diversity within the church. 
The Apostle Paul picks up on this one and the many and says, this is intentional. This diversity is glorious and beautiful. It's the design of King Christ by which he would establish the oneness of this church. Is not our like-mindedness. Not our like-giftedness. It is Christ. What binds us together is not our perceivable similarities, but our faith in Jesus. He is the one in us and among us. And with this in mind, then, we can understand that the different things we bring to this community are gifts from the one. He, as king and head of the church, has given you to us. We are gifts to one another. His blessing, that we might bless each other with his blessings. Paul makes this point by grabbing a chunk of Psalm 68. And to those of us who remember well Tom's class several weeks ago, when a New Testament author grabs a little tiny piece of an Old Testament text, he doesn't mean to proof text. He wants you to go back to the original passage And understand it in its original context. So let's do that. Turn with me to Psalm 68. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 68. We'll hear it this morning. We'll sing it this month. And Lord willing, we'll learn and grow how to live with our God. Psalm 68. Hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zion. 
The mountains of God is the mountain of Bashan. The mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000. Even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. Even from the rebellious. That the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. The God of our salvation. Selah. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies. The hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may crush them in blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players of instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader. The princes of Judah and their company. The princes of Zebulun. The princes of Naphtali. O God, your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. The herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come from out of Egypt. Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribed strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Amen. And amen. There was a strange thing happening on my eighth grade football team. First, we were winning. Second, we were ending every game in a line along the sidelines with our arms draped over each other's shoulders as the seconds ticked away off the scoreboard, swaying back and forth, singing silly songs. Do you know what it takes to get 13-year-old boys to sing out loud in front of a stadium full of fans? I mean, have you, have you seen 8th graders in, in like church, church concerts, school concerts? They're the ones mumbling watermelon in the back row. There we were, at the top of our lungs, 
ignoring everyone in the world, happy to be shoulder to shoulder in football pads, singing at the top of our lungs. Why? We were winning. Success has a strange effect on singing. It makes us excited. It makes us enthusiastic. I started with that childhood story. I tend to start with childhood stories, but I could easily pick one from Fenway. Couldn't I? Have you been there in the seventh inning? There's a kind of enthusiasm that rises as all the hearts are united, especially if the Red Sox are winning. Friends, this is what Psalm 68 is intended to be. It's that song that the church sings when we drape our arms around one another and sway back and forth. I'm not advocating that you do that. But that's the mental and emotional image is that there is such victory in Jesus, such incredible triumph in our God, that when we sing this song, there is a glorious self forgetfulness a complete loss of awareness of others as we are just swallowed up in the joy of singing the victory song the good news for us today the gospel truth is that jesus rules over all jesus has ascended on high where he rules and reigns over all So let's worship him with joyful songs. Let us sing his joyful praise. Look at the psalm with me. Notice, first of all, that it's 35 verses. So I'm going to have to move somewhat quickly. The psalm comes to us in two parts with three chunks in each part. David reviews in the first half of the psalm this history of the Ark of the Covenant. He is reflecting on the Ark's relationship to Israel and what it means or communicates about God and his relationship to Israel. Notice in verse 1 that David begins by singing and through the chief musician teaching the church, the choir, to sing. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. This is a very significant use of words for two reasons. One is, you may recall from last month, that Psalm 67 verse 1 began by singing Numbers chapter 6, the Aaronic benediction. David is taking Aaron's blessing at the end of the worship service, and he's bringing it into the worship service through Psalm 67. In like manner, David here in Psalm 68 verse 1 is taking Moses' statement in Numbers chapter 10, and he's bringing it into the public worship of the church. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. The reason this is important, because in Numbers chapter 10, when Moses declares, let God arise, this is not a statement of command. See, the cloud has already lifted up from the tabernacle when Moses says, let God arise. The Ark of the Covenant is already being gathered up on its poles and set on the shoulders of the priests. When the church prays, let God arise, 
We are not asking for a seated God to stand up. We are acknowledging the living God is active and present. We are acknowledging the reality. God arises. It's what he does. We have a God who stands up. A God who acts. A God who is present. He is not indifferent. He is not aloof. He sees you. He knows you. And he acts. And when God arises, two things happen. The first is his enemies scatter. David wants us to grasp emphatically the totality of this fact. And so he gives us five verbs. The enemies scatter. The enemies flee. The enemies are driven away. The enemies melt like wax. The enemies perish. You guys get the point? They're gone. When God arises, there are no more enemies. When God arises, the victory is is total. God arises. That's it. He has arisen. Enemies are gone. They have scattered. They have fled. They have been driven away. They have melted away. They have perished. By contrast, David gives us five verbs for God's people, though. When God arises, their experience is different. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They are glad. And they rejoice. Indeed, they rejoice exceedingly. And this gladness, joy, and exceeding joy, notice the progression of intensity, is expressed in singing. In singing joyously. Indeed, they exalt God. This is the reality of our world. This is that first principle on which David will build the psalm. That we have a God who stands up. We have a God who gets involved. We have a God who is active and alert in our world. And when that happens, victory happens. God overcomes his enemies totally and completely. We have only one job. Sing. We celebrate. We're the party. We show up to celebrate the totality of our God's victory. Friends, this is our calling in life. This is why we are called to worship on the Lord's Day. This is why we call ourselves to private worship weekday by weekday. This is why we call our spouse and our children into family worship. We pull ourselves together into worship because the victory has been won. Because God has overcome. Because God stood up. But God doesn't just stand up, inert, He moves. In the following verses, beginning in verse 5, it's specifically mentioned in verse 7, God marches through the wilderness. What David here imagines is this Ark of the Covenant is hoisted off its stand onto the shoulders of the priests. God stands up. The cloud of divine presence rises from the tabernacle. God stands up. But he doesn't just stand up. As we saw in verses 33 and 34 of Numbers chapter 10, He goes before us. That Ark of the Covenant and the cloud of God's presence departs the camp first. He marches through the wilderness ahead of us. He is, in the words of the book of Hebrews, here we go again, another connection. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the pioneer who we follow in the wilderness. And there are, again, two effects. 
If we have a God who arises, then we have enemies who flee and saints who celebrate. But in like manner, David establishes in verses 7, 5 and following that there are two effects of having a God who goes before us in this world. Number one, we all get a home. Do you see that in verses 5 and 6? Orphans get adopted. Widows join the bride of Christ. The lonely get families. Those who are enslaved are set free. The rebellious alone are left in the dry land. Of course, that's a very historically rich imagery, right? There's the rebellious generation of Israelites who perish in the wilderness. But those who needed a home got one. Those who needed a spouse got one. Those who needed a family got one. When God goes into the world, people find a home. They find a family. In His home and in His family. In a second and similar metaphor, David says in verses 8 and 9, that when God goes into the wilderness, it's not wilderness anymore. It's a great image. It says that God shakes the heavens. Another Hebrew reference. Hebrews reference. He shakes the heavens and out of the heavens, as he, as he grabs the sky, he's walking through the wilderness, he reaches up and he grabs the sky and he violently shakes it and out of it comes rain. And the wilderness, the desert, is now a garden. He sends plentiful rain. He confirms his inheritance when it is weary. He refreshes it with water from a rock. He refreshes it with manna from heaven each morning. With quail from the breeze each night. He provides with an abundance of goodness, verse 10, for wherever the congregation dwells. It doesn't matter where they are in the wilderness. There in that spot where there was no water, when God shows up, there's water. That spot in the wilderness where there was no food, when God shows up, there's food. This is the image that David has. That when the Ark of the Covenant arises, the nations scatter before us like the Red Sea. When the Ark of the Covenant arises, we celebrate and sing for joy. And when the Ark of the Covenant marches out, the wilderness becomes a garden. And everybody is brought into this loving family and adopted as, as brought home. Now, we live in a world where these things which David reflects on as being the history of the Ark of the Covenant seem interesting, maybe. It's kind of cool to actually have a pastor kind of take you through the imagery of the poetry and be like, oh, is that what David's talking about? But... What does this have to do with us? Does anyone know what is happening in the city of Boston in just a couple of weeks? A group of Satanists are trying to set out Guinness Book of World Records for the largest Satanic gathering in Boston. What do we do about that? Believe that God arises and his enemies scatter. What if we're actually living in a world where there isn't just a bunch of weirdos dressing up as Satanists and having some sort of like Comic-Con convention? 
What if there's really actually Satan and his demons are really oppressing our neighbors and enslaving our children? What do we do about that? We believe that God arises and his enemies are scattered. We sing in the victory of Jesus. What do we do when we look out at our presbytery and our congregation and we realize as a presbytery, we don't have any money or men for church planting, and yet we're trying to plant two churches? What do we do when we look at our congregation as we did yesterday and we say, we're not ready to do this and we're not ready to do that and we just, we're behind on this and we're behind on that? We realize that it is God who marches through the wilderness and waters it and turns it into a garden. One of the most deadly mistakes we as Christians can make is think that we're in charge. God arises and God goes forth. We sing. This is what Psalm 68 is training us to understand. This isn't our world, it's His. This isn't our church, it's His. This isn't our kingdom, it's His. And He arises and He goes forth. And on the basis of those two truths, we, my friends, have nothing to fear. Indeed, let us sing his praise with joy. And if I were to apply the second one, let's open our homes and our hearts. How is it that God welcomes the orphan, the widow? We open our church and say, welcome home, friend. We become a church that understands we are the arms of Christ welcoming him in. David sets before our eyes in Psalm 68 this vision. This understanding of the world. We have a God who arises. Let's not be afraid. Let's sing his praise. We have a God who goes forth. Let's follow him. Where's he going? Let's go after him. But then David notices something thirdly about the history of the Ark of the Covenant. That the Ark of the Covenant then camps. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company who proclaimed it. This is in the context of a settled encampment. He calls it in verses 15 and 16, a mountain. The mountain of God. And in verses 15 and 16, he compares that mountain to the mountains, notice the plural, of Bashan. Bashan has many mountains. They have one little mountain. There's an easy uh, illustration of this for our, for our understanding. Have you guys seen Beacon Hill? Just over the Charles River. Used to be a hill. Now it's just kind of like half a hill. And there's a bunch of houses on it. And a state house. How do you think Beacon Hill stacks up against the Rockies? Let's say Pikes Peak. Front range. That's the comparison that's being made here. Jerusalem's hill against the front range of the Rockies. Bashan has every earthly advantage. Bashan has kings of glory and of wealth. In fact, one of their kings, Og, is a giant. He's huge and he's rich and he's strong and he has a mighty army. Does anybody remember what happened to Og of Bashan? It's in Psalm 136. God beat him up and killed him. They had Sion, king of the Amorites, ruler of all the clans of the Amorites with his great army. You guys remember what happened to him? He's in Psalm 136 too. They wiped him out. 
all the kings, including Balak, who looked at the story of Og and the story of Sion and said, all right, I'm not going to fight. I've learned it. Two strikes, we're out. We're not fighting Israel. You know what we're going to do? We're going to hire the prophet Balaam and we're going to curse them. And three times Israel was blessed from the mountains of Bashan. Because the mountain on which God dwells couldn't be cursed by the mountains of Bashan. Because the mountain on which God dwells couldn't be conquered by the mountains of Bashan. Because God is in their midst. To illustrate the totality of this victory, David then turns in verses 11 through 14 to reflect on the distribution of the spoil. And he says in verse 11, the Lord gave the word, great is the company or hosts, and it's in an unlikely form. It's female. Companies and hosts in Hebrew are almost always male. This one's female. And that's because in the next line it says, she who remains at home divides the spoil. In verse 13, we're told where the warriors are. They lie down among the sheepfolds. But yet, though Israel consists of housewives at home with their children and shepherds in the folds with their sheep, i.e. there's no army, there's no warriors, they nevertheless divide the spoil of the kings. So who's winning the fight if Israel hasn't put an army in the field? It is God. It is God. He has arisen. He has gone forth. And he now encamps on the mountain. And no one can touch it. There he distributes all the treasures, all the wealth, and all the wonders of his works, of what he has done. It is glowing with glory, silver, gold, white as snow, all the triumphs of his victory, all his spoils. It is the housewives that go first. There's so much in this psalm. I was thinking I wouldn't go through this, but I have to go through this. This imagery here that David gives us, have you ever noticed how true this is? It's always the housewives who notice first the victory of God. Whose song did we sing when the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea? It was Miriam's. Whose song did we sing when the Midianites were destroyed? It was Deborah's. And who are the first people on earth to hear the words, Emmanuel is conceived? Mary and Elizabeth. My friends... Do not underestimate housewives. They are the hosts that proclaim this good news. Do not underestimate an ordinary life. Getting up and going to work. Getting up and coming home. Having family worship. Going to church on Sunday. It's not exciting. It won't get you in the history books. But it's how God conquers the world. But it's how God demonstrates, I have arisen, I have gone forth, and here I have encamped. It's the sheep, the shepherds among their sheep. The guys are just doing their jobs. They haven't taken up arms. They haven't gone to war. They're just taking care of their sheep. They're just doing their jobs. The women are just home with their kids. They're just doing their jobs. Friends, isn't this incredibly encouraging? You have a God who is conquering the world and He's doing it through you living your ordinary life. 
You don't have to be extraordinary. You do have to be faithful. This is what the psalm sets before us. David then revisits each of these three stations. David revisits God encamped, God going forth, and God arising. But in doing so, he no longer reflects on the history of the Ark of the Covenant, how it was lifted up in their midst, how it went out before them, and how they followed it to dwell in the land of promise. But rather, David now, in verse 17, begins to reflect on the role of the Ark of the Covenant in the present time. And it's this leap from the history of the Ark to the present experience of the Ark that the Holy Spirit uses to draw our attention far into the prophetic future to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice in verses 17 and 18, David says, The chariots are 20,000, thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them. If you're holding the ESV, what does it say? Sinai is in the sanctuary. That is a sweetly poetic turn of phrase. That just sits in the ear. It is warm to the heart. Sinai is in the sanctuary. It's referring to 2 Samuel 6. Where the Ark of the Covenant, in which are the two tablets of the Law of Moses that had been received on Mount Sinai, have come into Jerusalem. Sinai is in the sanctuary. Literally. Historically. David here isn't just waxing lyrical about, hey, once upon a time our fathers saw that there was a God who was active in the world. That's not what David is saying. He's saying, no, God is here and now. He's among us, right here. Do you think the only people in this room are those you can see with your eyes? Do you not know that angels are staring from heaven, longing to know what we're going through right now? Do you not know that saints in glory are worshiping with you? Or rather, you're worshiping with them. Do you not know that the living God sees you, dwells with you, dwells within you? The Ark of the Covenant has come into the sanctuary. It has come into the very midst of Jerusalem. The story is done. Incarnation is here. That's what David's preaching. Dear saints, the history has come to its end. Sinai is in the sanctuary. Now, you may look around and notice we don't have a magic box anymore, do we? And we don't keep... Rocks. I mean, some of our kids gather rocks from the sidewalk, but that's different. No, instead, we have a different thing. What can we look at with our eyes and see that Sinai is in the sanctuary? What can we hold with our hands and see that God is among us? Something far better than a piece of acacia wood wrapped in gold. The very flesh and blood that the Holy Spirit has chosen to inhabit. Sinai is in the sanctuary. God and humanity dwell together in the person of Jesus Christ and in His body, the church. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. The Ark of the Covenant goes up into Jerusalem, up onto the mountain of God. And in its wake and in its train, as if the Ark of the Covenant were a conquering king, comes all its captives, David, 
his mighty men, the priests, the Levites, and all Israel. And they give gifts to him. Every six steps, they slaughter an animal. They worship him with sacrifices according to the Old Testament custom. And even the rebellious are brought in. Saul's daughter makes an appearance. The rebellious that under Moses perished in the wilderness are under David witnessing this extraordinary worship service where the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, has come into Jerusalem. And there is David's salt, David's daughter, David's wife, Saul's daughter, cursing him for taking off his crown, for taking off his robes, for not leading the procession. And David answers and says, you don't understand. I'm not the head of the parade. The Ark of the Covenant is. God is. Jesus is. He arises. He goes forth. He encamps. He's the one dwelling in Jerusalem. We call it the city of David, but you know what David would want us to call it? The city of God. Because that's what mattered. Not that the king of Israel was there in David, but that the king of Israel was there in the Ark of the Covenant. That the Lord God might dwell there. The consequences of his presence among us in verse 19 and 20 is that he is blessed as he loads us with benefits. What a phrase. You guys should commit this one to memory. He daily loads us with benefits. Now, most of my memories of being loaded up are being loaded up with dirty clothes to take down to the, lo- you know, the washroom in the basement. But that's not the image here. It's the image of the arms outstretched being loaded up with every good thing. Can you imagine walking through this world and being handed forgiveness of sin and righteousness and holiness and peace and happiness and joy? Can you imagine being loaded under a weight of goodness too great to bear? I hope you can imagine it. It's what you're living through. Daily, he loads us with benefits too numerous to count. The God of our salvation Our God is the God of salvation. He helps us escape from death. He dwells among us and he loads us up with these blessings, these benefits. David has now established the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And there out will go the blessings. And he recounts them in the following verses as procession. You see that in verse 24? He proceeds out. They proceeded into the sanctuary to worship with victory on their heels. Literally in verse 22 and 23. It is God who wounded the head of his enemies. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? He will crush the head of the serpent and the heel will be bit. It is God himself who will fulfill Genesis 3.15. Who will crush the head of his enemies and his serpents. He will bring them down in their sin. But he will bring back from Bashan our exiles. There will be a totality of victory. He will rule over all. We don't actually very get excited. We don't get very excited about verses 22 and 23 in our soft post-Victorian American society. We don't actually enjoy the idea of walking across a battlefield with blood-stained feet. It's not a very pretty or 
clean image. But if you're a warrior like David, who makes a living killing people so that you don't get killed, the idea of walking across a battlefield with that sense of satisfaction that you didn't die that day, and the blood hits your feet, it's actually a refreshing image. It's the idea that I survived. This is the sense of victory that settles in the heart of God's people. That he has gone out into the world and our victory is in him. And so the celebration begins in verses 25 and following. Again, notice the inversion of the roles. Little Benjamin is their leader. David picking on Saul. Saul got to be king first. David's not too proud to admit it. Then comes the princes of Judah. At last, in Judah will come Zebulun and Naphtali, those far-off tribes settling far from Jerusalem. But whether little like Benjamin or great like Judah, whether far-off like Zebulun, Naphtali, and Bashan, nevertheless, all of God's people will make it to Jerusalem. They will all come in and be blessed as the congregations of the Lord, drinking from the fountain of Israel. And out will come his strength in their works. And out will come his worship from their hearts. A worship that will spread into the world. Verses 28 and following. A worship that he will affect by the rebuke of his enemies. The herds of the bulls. They will submit themselves in worship. Coming to celebrate him at the temple in Jerusalem in verse 29. Those who delight in war in verse 30 will be turned into worshipers in verse 31. Those who are far off come to worship. David is reviewing this refrain that where God camps, there is an abundance of blessing. And where God goes, there is an ingathering of people and a filling them up with every good thing. When God goes on parade, humanity follows him behind and is drawn into the glory of his experience. But when did this happen? How do we see this played out in our life? It is the Apostle Paul who has grabbed verse 18. You ascended on high and said that was Jesus. That was Jesus, who according to Ephesians 4, ascended on high, pulling into his train all those who were enslaved to sin and death, and said, you are free, follow me. He is the one who arose, it is Jesus who stood up, and we follow him. He is the one who arose, who went up on high, there's this incredible language that is used. In both the beginning and the end of the psalm, David says, He is the God who rides through the deserts on the clouds. The language Jesus will use of himself in the Gospel of Matthew. The language of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. He rides on the heaven of heavens. He is the God who has arisen. The God who has gone forth and the God who has encamped among us. So what do we do? What do we do if that's our world? And if we live in that world? David says, sing. Now, one thing that I find very interesting, that the psalm in verses 32 through 35 simply ends with sing. Sing praises. 
ascribe strength, sing of his glory, is surely there must be more to it than that, right? Like, is it really that, that our relationship to this world is we have only to sing the glory of God? Our relationship to God is we have only to sing his glory. Yes, there is, of course, more to it in the commands of God. There's more to Scripture than Psalm 68. But there isn't less. Does that make sense? I think the great challenge for us in Psalm 68 isn't that we tend to overlook that there's more to life than singing his praise. I think it's that we're too tempted to go through life forgetting that there is nothing less than singing his praise. It is not too small a thing to spend almost 40 minutes telling you again and again, here's why you should sing his praise. He's worthy of your praise. He has arisen and rules over all. He has gone forth in rule over all. He has encamped among us as ruler over us. Sing his praise with joy. Sing his praise. Notice this, which is probably my favorite line in the psalm. That's why I saved it for the end. Verse 35. I think it's also why David saved it for the end. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. God's glory isn't found in a box. The Ark of the Covenant. God's glory isn't found in stones etched with Hebrew words. God's glory isn't found at 53 Antrim Street, as fantastic of a building as this is. God inhabits the praises of his people. If you sing, there is the glory of God. Wherever you sing. Singing is not a small thing. Singing is not an insignificant thing. Because our God who rules over all, rules through our praise. So let's sing. But first, let's pray. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this, your beautiful day. We give you thanks for this, your beautiful psalm. We give you thanks, O God, for the riches that are in it for us in Christ. Our Father, we give you thanks that He is the one who has arisen from the earth, from the grave, from death itself, and who has ascended up into heaven high, where He rules and reigns. And our Father, we give you thanks that He is the one who has gone forth into the world to lead us from death to life to everlasting life. And we give you thanks that He is the one who is with us, the Emmanuel who dwells with us. That in Him and through Him we might have peace. And we pray, O God, that as we walk in this world, we might walk with Him. Please, O God, put His praises in our hearts and in our lips that we might bring him glory. For this we ask in his name. Amen.